Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Dear God. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, back in 2005, a Russian scientist named Stefan Pachikov began working on a software program that would enable people to have a secondary brain so they could remember everything. Not long after this, an entrepreneur named Phil Leibin uh, discovered the program and fell in love with it. Eventually, Leibin was invited to serve as a CEO for this new tech startup and to bring this yet-to-exist product to market. The product became known as Evernote. Evernote is a cross-platform application that allows users to capture and catalog and recall everything from text to voice memos to pictures, recipes, receipts, meeting notes, and much more. With its simple slogan, quote, remember everything, uh, this startup has become known as a unicorn in the tech industry because it now boasts more than 200 million users, one of them being me, uh, supports 25 languages, and has 320 employees, and the company is worth $1 billion. We need applications like Evernote, and there is a need for them, and that's why I think it's a hot item, a hot product, because as fallen sinners, we are prone to forget anything. So we need an application to help us remember everything. Although some of us are more forgetful than others, something that I think we all share in common is a fear that God would forget us and that he might do so when we need him most. David feared this too. And he records his fear of being forgotten by God in Psalm 22. And so we're going to look at that prayer that he records to the Lord. Uh, this morning, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 22. We're going to continue our series on prayer in the Psalms called Dear God. If you forgot your Bible, uh, we have copies we can loan you. Just raise your hand and we'll get one in your, in your hands. We want you to have a copy with you. I want to encourage you to take the sermon notes out of the worship folder that you received this morning as well. There's an outline so you can fill in the blanks and follow along with me. And then hopefully uh, be able to save those notes for a later date where they can encourage you. Our theme verse for this series comes from Psalm 34, verse 4. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to underline it in your Bible or highlight it and memorize it with me. Psalm 34, verse 4. Let's read it out loud together. You can use the screen behind me or you can use the, the copy that's in your sermon notes. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Book one of the Psalms reads like a dramatic prayer journal, pulling back the curtain on uh, the only man in scripture that was ever called a man after God's own heart. Behind the curtain, we find that David was human, just like us. 
He had flaws and fears and struggles. However, his writings also, I think, pose a question for all of us. And that is, will we be men and women after God's own heart like him? In Psalm 22, David cries out in prayer, feeling like the Lord had forgotten him. And so here's our big idea for today, the sermon in one sentence. I hope you remember this, if you remember anything, and that is that the Lord will always remember us because he can't forget us. The Lord will always remember us because he can't forget us. The Psalms are loaded with prayers from godly people that were hurting, struggling, suffering, dying, lonely, but still trusted and hoped in the Lord. And Psalm 22 is one such prayer. Although David doesn't mention when or where he was uh, in the superscript of the psalm, as he sometimes does mention, it's clear that he's enduring another season of suffering at the hands of his enemies. You might remember me mentioning earlier in this series that uh, there are six types of psalms recorded in this book. Like Psalm 13 last week, uh, this Psalm 22 is classified as a lament because it's a complaint mixed with a cry for help, a desperate cry for help. Lament Psalms basically say, God, my life stinks, you don't seem to care, and I just want to die. And if Psalm 13 that we looked at last week was about waiting on God, then Psalm 22 is about what to do when you feel like God has forgotten you. And I might add, sometimes we feel like he's forgotten us when we've had to wait too long. So with that, notice the superscription in your Bibles. Uh, in the ESV, it says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Most Bibles have something like this, most translations do, um, the doe of the dawn or doe of the morning. Although it's not exactly clear what David meant by this, it's most likely or probable that doe of the dawn or doe of the morning was a popular tune, and so this particular psalm was to be put to that music. And so it was just simply directions for the worship leader. Now look at uh, verses 1 and 2 with me if you would. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Here's the first truth on your outline that I think we can glean from this psalm, and that is it's sometimes the Lord is silent. Sometimes the Lord is silent. You'll notice that David makes this plea, my God, my God, and then he makes it again in verse 2 for a total of three cries. The possessive pronoun my uh, conveys a personal relationship. But next he invokes the Hebrew, Hebrew name Elohim for God. 
You might remember me mentioning that the Lord has several names that are used for him in the Old Testament, each describing a different facet of his character. The name David uses here uh, gives us some insight into not only the, the side of God's character, facet of God's character that he's calling upon, but also it gives us some insight into how David was feeling when he wrote this. In this case, Elohim was the name that described God's strength and power. For example, Elohim was used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. I think David is trying to tell the Lord, if I was to paraphrase it in my own words, I think he's trying to say this, my God of strength and power, why have you left me when I need your strength and power to defeat my enemies? You could destroy them by simply wiggling your toe and they'd be done. It'd be that easy for you. Where are you? Notice he says, why have you forsaken me in verse 1 as well? The word forsake comes from a Hebrew word that means to leave behind, to abandon, or to desert. It reminds me of an experience I had a few times when I was a little child, and maybe you did as well, uh, going to the grocery store or the mall with my parents, and you know they would say, stay nearby me. And I remember in one particular store, my mother was absorbed in going through racks of clothes, and of course... As a you know, five, six-year-old, I was absolutely bored out of my mind and so went off exploring and, and then came back to where my mom was and she had moved to another part of the store. And my heart sank and I felt a great deal of anxiety thinking I'd been left behind. And then went searching, looking for her and finally found her. And, and of course, I probably thought I'd been left behind because she had threatened my brother and I a few times that if we didn't stay near her, she'd leave us. So, I mean... <laughs> I took my mom at her word. You know, she says she'd leave me, and she usually follows through with her word. So, so that was part of it, too. But, uh, but uh, you probably experienced similar things, but you find your parents when you're at the store again, and it's like, oh, good, they're still here. I'm okay. You know? I think that's what David was feeling. He was looking for his father, and he needed his father. There's great oppression coming at him from his enemies. His health is failing, and as you'll see later in the psalm, and he needs God right now, if more than any other time in his life, and he can't find God. Can't find him. There's no answer. Heaven is silent. David, I think, is saying to the Lord, normally I'm the one that wanders off, Lord, but this time I didn't. You're the one that did. Where'd you go? I'm not the one who left. You did, Lord. If this sounds familiar to you, it's, it's because this is exactly what Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. While he was hanging on the cross to pay the debt for our sins, in addition to becoming, uh, being called a lament psalm, Psalm 22 is also called a messianic psalm. Because Jesus quoted this psalm. But also because this psalm prophesies in great detail what would happen to Jesus on the cross. 
Verse 1 is here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is recorded as saying it in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew in uh, Aramaic. But um, uh, uh, verse 1, is, it's one of seven sayings that Jesus uttered on the cross. Psalm 22 not only describes later on in its remaining 30 verses things that were happening to David, but it also records eerily, it prophesies, things that would happen to Jesus. For example, in verses 7 and 8 in Psalm 22, David describes being mocked by his enemies while the priests did the very same thing to Jesus. In verse 18, David uh, uh, references his enemies dividing up his clothing. Well, they did the same to Jesus. It also, later in the psalm, I think it's in, um, uh, oh, it's in verse 15, I think, uh, he describes it a, an overwhelming thirst, his mouth being super dry. Well, the same thing happened to Jesus on the cross. The Messianic prophecies in this psalm, however, are not the focus of this series. I could do a whole series on that, so on Messianic prophecies. But uh, instead, I want us to learn how to use the psalms as a tool for prayer. And what I find fascinating is that if Jesus prayed Psalm 22 in one of his darkest hours, then why shouldn't we also pray the psalms and learn them? Obviously, Jesus saw value in what David wrote. When Jesus was at his darkest hour and felt like the Father had abandoned him and he's hanging on the cross, taking on the wrath of God for the sins of the world, Jesus turned to the Psalms. 22, verse 1. Look at verse 2 in your Bibles with me. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Verse 2 reveals a persistency, a frequency, and a duration to David's prayers. So this wasn't, uh, you know, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food at dinner time kind of praying. He's praying almost nonstop, desperate for the Lord to show up. Yet he got no answer. Imagine telephoning a close friend that you used to always be able to count on, and you really needed their help. Yet the phone just rings and rings, and rings. And yet, you know they're home. And as you're ringing their smartphone, you know they're not picking up. But they could. You know they're not out of the country. You know they're not out of town. You know this is the time that they're home, and you're calling them, and they're not answering. Or maybe it's leaving voicemails with a loved one at a time of great need, and you never get a call back. That's how David felt. Lord, I know you're there. You're supposed to be picking up. You're not picking up. I don't know why. I need you now. I don't know what I did wrong. David was experiencing what many theologians call the dark night of the soul. That's a phrase you might want to write down. The dark night of the soul. The phrase originated in a famous poem written by the 16th century Spanish priest 
St. John of the Cross. In the poem, St. John writes, and I'll show it to you on the screen so you can see it. Uh, in the Spanish, it's, uh, the phrase is, Noche Obscura del Alma. And it's, it's translated to English, the dark night of the soul. And in his poem, he, it's sort of like a pilgrim's progress-like psalm, or excuse me, poem. He, he sort of describes the spiritual journey that God takes Christians on. And so, St. John of the Cross wrote, The dark night of the soul, in this time of dryness, spiritual people undergo great trials. They believe that spiritual blessings are a thing of the past, and that God has abandoned them. I could list a handful of well-known authors that I have come across over the years that have shared similar insights in their own walk with the Lord about God's silence or a seeming distance or season of absence. But I don't have time to list them all this morning. But here's one more for you. Almost 300 years later, Oswald Chambers, in his famous devotion book, My Utmost for My Highest, wrote this. There are times when God will appear like an unkind friend, but he is not. He will appear like an unnatural father, but he is not. He will appear like an unjust judge, but he is not. Nothing happens in any particular unless God's will is behind it. Therefore, you can rest in perfect confidence in him. In other words, what Chambers was saying is that you will experience, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will experience at times seasons of silence. Seasons where God seems to stop speaking and stop working, where he seems to almost just kind of put you in an incubator or a crockpot or a holding pattern, and you're just like, hello, what's going on? And just nothing's happening. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you may feel forgotten by him, when your suffering seems purposeless or prolonged. You may feel forgotten by him when your prayers seem unanswered and you've done your best to align them with the scriptures. You may even be praying scripture and you're going, what's up, Lord? I'm praying your word, so I pray your will and nothing's happening. You may feel like God's forgotten you if you haven't heard his voice in a while. Or when your life doesn't turn out like you'd hoped. You may feel like God's forgotten you when all of a sudden you're alone for an extended period of time. Maybe friends that you once had are no longer with you or marriage has come to an end. What the Psalms and countless saints, though, throughout the centuries tell us is that seasons of silence are normal. Sometimes they go on for weeks, sometimes months, or even years. Here's our first application this morning. We want to take what God's Word says and ask, what is He 
What is he telling us to do, or what can we learn from this and apply? Well, here's the first application. Expect your own seasons of silence. Expect your own seasons of silence. And here's why I write that. When I experienced my first season of silence with the Lord as a new believer, it just wrecked me. Um, In my first couple years as a new believer in college, the Lord just was speaking and working and answering prayers, and I was getting to lead people to Christ through Camp's Crusade, and it was just rocking and rolling. And then all of a sudden, it came to a halt. It's like I couldn't hear the Holy Spirit speak to me. Didn't see the Lord working as much in my life, yet I confessed every sin that I knew I, I could have possibly done, even ones that I hadn't tried yet, I confessed, and, you know, I, was, I did everything I knew to do with the checklist that I'd gotten from Camp's Crusade, and couldn't figure out what's wrong. What am I doing wrong here, and how come God's not moving anymore, and I thought I'd lost my salvation, seriously, I started asking Jesus into my heart again. Maybe I didn't do it right the first time. I need to do it again. What I later learned is that I had become addicted to his activity in my life, but hadn't learned how to trust him when he was quiet. And I wish somebody had told me about that. Nobody had told me. That's why it wrecked me. Nobody explained to me, by the way, There's going to be some seasons where it seems like God is a little distant or silent or maybe just kind of left you in a waiting room like Psalm 13 or in a holding pattern, but it's okay. That's normal. No, instead, it's like I was so used to the rocking and rolling, the spirits doing things every day, and and it stopped. Hey, what's going on here? What happened? So now I'm telling you, it's normal. I experienced it, Oswald Chambers did, St. John of the Cross, and Charles Spurgeon, and many others, I could go on and on, have written about it. Sometimes the Lord just puts you where he wants you and leaves you there, kind of just to just obey, just walk with him and obey, and then he'll be back in a while. No special revelation, no season of great activity or productivity, just, I want you here, I'll be back in a while when I'm done with you here. And you're just in a holding pattern. You haven't done anything wrong, he just wants you to walk, to grow, and to trust him where you are. Now there are two simple reasons why I think God cannot forget his own children. The first that comes to mind, is that he's promised to never forget you if you know Christ as your Savior. And this is not on your outline, so you can add it in there. This, is, this, this was developed post-printing of the outline. <laughs> so so, so the, I have two reasons I'm going to give you why God can't forget you. Uh, first, he promised to never forget you. And here's uh, some verses I'm going to show you just to back this up, and I want you to just let these sink into your soul And I want to encourage you to maybe write them down so you can memorize them later. Put them on your keyboard at work or dashboard of your car. But Hebrews 13, 5. 
The Lord says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Then there's Isaiah 41, verses 9 and 10, where the Lord says to the people of Israel, and this would apply to believers in Christ's church as well, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Then there's Isaiah 44, verse 21. I formed you, you are my servant, and you will not be forgotten by me. So the Lord can't forget you if you know his son, Jesus Christ, because he's promised to not forget you. But here's the second reason why. He can't forget you because he isn't human. Forgetting is something only humans do. Forgetting is something that only finite, fallen people do, but not the infinite, infallible God. He can't forget. Just as we can't remember everything, the Lord cannot forget anything. Here's another example from the scriptures. Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. The Lord was trying to speak through Isaiah to encourage the people of Israel. They were feeling like God had forgotten them. It seems that in Isaiah 40s, the Isaiah 40s chapters, the Lord seems to repeat himself many times. This is powerful right here. The Lord says, ask a rhetorical question. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget You, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What's the Lord saying through Isaiah? Well, he's saying you all have, you all were comforted by nursing mothers who rarely, but sometimes forgot their children. But I mean, it was like so rare because they love their child. They don't want to leave the baby or toddler Uh, uncared for, unprotected. And the Lord is trying to make the argument here that, well, how much more should you be comforted by me? Because I never forget. Even if a nursing mom just had an off day and forgot once, God's saying, I never would. And then he even goes on further and he uses the imagery of engraving, that permanency of, of on my hand. So, so it's, you're with me. Your name is with me everywhere I go. Anytime I use my hands, I would see your name. It's not in, it's not in pencil. It's not in ink. It's not going to wear off over time. It's engraved. I have you tattooed on my hands, he says. So the Lord, he can't forget you if you know his son, Jesus Christ, and you've been born again, and you're his child, according to John 1. He can't forget you because he promises to never forget you. And he can't forget you because forgetting is something only humans do. The Lord will always remember us because he can't forget us. In other words, to forget is human, but to never forget is divine. Well, let's look at the text again as David continues to pour his heart out to the Lord. Look at verses 3 to 5 with me. David says, Yet you, 
are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, and they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here's number two on your outline. The second truth that we can glean from this passage is that the generations before you testify to God's faithfulness. The generations before you testify to God's faithfulness. I want you to notice, if you would, in verses 3, 4, and 5, how they begin, and then contrast them to verse 6. Notice in verse 3, yet you, verse 4, in you, verse 5, to you, and then look at verse 6, but I am a worm David says in verse 5, they cried and they were rescued. They asked, you responded, Lord. His reflection on God's past work was both comforting and conflicting to him. On the one hand, I think David's saying, Lord, you did amazing things in the past and I believe you can do them again. On the other hand, I also think David's saying, "Um, Lord... You answered them. How come you're not answering me? Like family photo albums that warm our hearts with good memories, the Psalms contain numerous references of uh, uh, struggling saints in the present being encouraged by God's work in the past and finding strength in that. This is because the saints in the scriptures believe that the Lord can take care of them in the past, then certainly he can take care of me in the present. And we can find that same comfort too. So, here's some applications. I have three here for you at the end of major point two. uh, Three applications. Study the promises in God's word. Study the promises in God's word. The Holy Spirit may not always speak to you with personalized, specific directions. One of the things that I um, learned during my first season of silence when my faith was wrecked is that I needed to stop expecting a special revelation from God because um, His word is always speaking. So, so I needed to be in the Word and allow the Spirit to speak through the Word because the Spirit inspired the writing of the Word, as opposed to wanting something separate from the Word that would be just for me. And so the Lord taught me that I needed to look and study the Scriptures and realizing there's all sorts of things He's saying in God's Word. So I think I was kind of lazy, too. I didn't want to do the work of studying the Scriptures as much when I was a younger believer, and I kind of just wanted it to come to me with... You know, a pillar of cloud by day and night and lightning and thunder and all that stuff. So, so, so what, uh, study the promises of God. Many, many saints through the centuries after the canon of Scripture was closed have gained great strength and encouragement by looking at the promises of God. 
There are even books online that you can get that have promises sorted by topic. You can go to christianbook.com or Amazon, and I get no commission for it. But um, they can be helpful if you need somebody to pull them out for you. You can get a promise book in various translations. Spurgeon used to say that God's promises are like a check made payable to the believer with the intent of bestowing upon him some good thing in God's timing so that you can take the check to the bank and cash it when you need it. And God puts the funds in the account when he's ready to deliver on the promise. Here's the second application. Read biographies of old saints. Now, I got to admit, I... I had somebody tell me to do this years ago, and I kind of scoffed. I, I'm ashamed to admit this because I, I was really proud and arrogant, and I thought, why do I want to read stuff old dead guys wrote? Well, then the Lord took me through another season of suffering and affliction, and I found that I needed some encouragement from more than just the Word. And so I started reading some biographies about old dead guys. And what I found was some profound, um, insightful, just learning about their lives and what they went through and what, how God used them, but also the suffering they went through and how God afflicted them. Uh, some examples that come to mind. John Bunyan uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Corey Ten Boom, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, and I could go on and on. Those are just a few that, of, of godly saints, post-Scripture, uh, biblical times, that loved the Lord, were used mightily by Him, but also experienced great tragedy and great loss. They all loved the Lord, and they had to trust Him through very difficult circumstances. Here's number three. Third application. Take a long view of your life. Looking at your life as a larger story that God is weaving and writing for your own good and his glory will help you be patient in the seasons where he's silent. In those seasons where you feel like he's not working, it will help if you look at your life from a macro perspective, a big picture perspective, as opposed to like last year and this year and next year. <laughs> kind of the year I'm in, the year I just finished, and the year I'm about to go into. How come I don't see God do anything? Well, he's looking at your life as a whole. And he was working before you were here, and he'll be working after you're gone. And you are a part of a bigger master plan that he's trying to accomplish. So, the applications are study the promises in God's word, read biographies of the old saints, and then take a long view of your life. Look at the text again with me in verse 6. There's a transition, or I call it a pivot, with the conjunction, but David in the previous verses is saying, Lord, you came through in the past for my ancestors, but I am a worm, not a man, but scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. 
Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's how they really sounded back then. Didn't you know that? They might have been trolls. I don't know. It's, it's not clear in the ESV. Maybe it's hidden in the Hebrew text. But, but that's, the, that's the meaning that he's trying to convey. And he, they're making fun of his faith, saying, where is your God? Where's your God now? And so David is pleading with the Lord saying, hey, your reputation's on the line here because they're saying you can't do anything, Lord. I need you to show up. Elohim, by the way, I need that. I need him to show up. Strength, power, little boom, shakalaka, you know, some, some pizzazz. Some, I need you to do like that thing you did for uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. That'd be good. That'd be really good right now, Lord. Get the wood wet. Bring some fire down. So, here's number three on your outline. Suffering is not a sign of abandonment. Suffering is not a sign of abandonment. Why did David choose a worm out of all the animals in the kingdom? Well, one thought that comes to mind is that worms have no rank in the animal kingdom. They live most of their short lifespan beneath ground level and are food for several other species. So in other words, they're born to be bait. They're just born to be food. Basically, worms are eaten by almost every other animal. And that's how David felt. I mean, he didn't say, I feel like an eagle flying through the mountains. And, you know, he didn't say, I feel like a cheetah just prancing across the prairie at 70 miles an hour. No, he says, I'm a worm. I could get stepped on by a human or eaten by an animal. I, I'm defenseless. I can't do anything for myself. It's dark where I live under the ground. And if I come out into the light, the sun can burn me and dry me up. Notice in verse 11, if you skip down to verse 11, he pleads, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Did you notice how David equated his suffering with God being distant instead of close? Contrary to popular thinking, the Bible teaches that suffering can sometimes be a sign that God is using you. There's a long-standing myth held by American Christians and churchgoers that equates God's presence with comfort and God's absence with suffering. Suffering for the gospel was the norm in the scriptures. But in American evangelicalism, it has become the exception. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, our country was founded on Judeo-Christian values that made the gospel influential for at least our first 200 years of existence. Obviously, our country is changing now and moving away from those values. And so the gospel is becoming more intolerable. 
We can either complain about this or see it as an opportunity for the gospel to shine brighter. But what's interesting is that in the New Testament, when the Lord's church was persecuted, the church shined and flourished, and the gospel spread. Here's another reason for our misconceptions on suffering, in my humble opinion, and that is that living in the wealthiest first world country on the planet has made us turn comfort into an idol. Most of us live so comfortably that we can't relate to the people in Scripture that have suffered, and we get mad at God when he doesn't protect our comfort. I have been convicted about that lately, just studying the scriptures and going, man, the world that they lived in is so different than the world we're living in. And the things that we get upset about are so, you know, Lord, I'm suffering. I can't get Wi-Fi. What is with the signal here? Or, what, Lord, would you please tell the cell phone company they got to put a new tower right there because I, I'm only getting one bar. I can't upload to Facebook when I'm recording the worship service at Vanguard, man. This is rough. It's not uploading in high definition. It's that fuzzy, barely standard definition. Or, man, I had to park out in the boondocks when I went to Target. Suffering, Lord. I ended up getting 300 more steps on my fitness tracker because of that. This is rough. And yet, in the New Testament, there were saints that were quartered by horses and beheaded, and they considered it a great honor. Paul, when he's in prison writing a good chunk in the New Testament, writes to Timothy and Titus and other cohorts of his that he's honored to be in prison for the gospel, chained up. He didn't see it as God leaving him. Paul saw it as God's using me still. And yet, so many times in my own life when I've suffered for the gospel or great loss, when I've stood up for my faith or stood up for the word, I have felt that God abandoned me. So, um, here's... Let me give you A, B, and C, D, and E on your outline. I, I think it would be helpful for us to understand that not all suffering comes from the same place. And I'm going to explain why you need to diagnose where the suffering is coming from when you go through it. So uh, here's letter A. Uh, sometimes it's just fallout from the fall. <laughs> that what you're going through is not... It's, it's, not, uh, it's not because you sinned in particular or it's not persecution. It's just Genesis 3, verses 1 to 19, God lays out the curse that will be on earth and everybody kicked out of the garden and this is what your life's going to be like, living under the curse of sin until Jesus comes back. We've been banished to live a cursed life here on earth and our banishment includes two types of evil. Both were on the news this week. Moral evil takes place when sinners sin against sinners, like in Las Vegas, where the worst mass shooting in U.S. history took place. That's moral evil. But then there's natural evil, which is things like hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and 
floods and cancer and birth defects. They're not anyone's fault in particular. They're just acts of God, as the insurance company would call them. So, fallout from the fall. It's just a reminder that we are not in the garden anymore and we are not in the heaven yet. We're in between. Here's letter B. Sometimes suffering is chastening from the Lord. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. Because the Lord is deeply committed to conforming his children into the image of his son, he allows or causes seasons of intense trial in our lives. Sometimes it is to address an ungodly part of our character, while other times we haven't done anything wrong at all. The Lord just wants to make us grow. He says, you're going to grow this year. Boom, you get cancer. You didn't do anything to deserve cancer other than just being born a sinner, but, but you're going to grow this year. You're going to pray like you've never prayed before. Regardless, Hebrews 12 tells us that the purpose of such discipline is so that we can share in his holiness. Here's letter C. The third cause of suffering or source of suffering from the scriptures is consequences from our sin. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Because the Lord is a loving father and he wants what's best for his children, just like you would for your children, the Lord doesn't allow sin to happen without a consequence usually. Because he wants us to learn not to do that sin again. A good example of this is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David foolishly enters into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba after the prophet Nathan exposes the affair. The Lord kills the child that Bathsheba has as a consequence of their sin. David, you might remember, stayed up late all night for a few nights in a row, fasting and praying and pleading that God would spare the child, and the Lord said, No, I'm not going to do this. The child will die because of what you did. Here's letter D. Sometimes it's an attack from the adversary. Job chapter 1 and 2. In Job 1 and 2, we know that Satan got permission from God to go and attack Job, who was a righteous man. He unleashes an onslaught of spiritual warfare on this godly man and his family. And the book of Job tells us that Satan was on a leash, though, the entire time. And the Lord redeemed the attack by using it for good in his life by the end of the book of Job. And finally, letter E, sometimes we suffer because it's persecution for our faith. It's persecution. Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John, and this applies to us as well, the world hates me because I testify that it does evil. John 7, 7. And because they hate me, they will also hate you. John 15, 19. The apostles saw this as a privilege to suffer for the gospel. Paul says in Philippians 1, 27 to 30, that we get to, we're worthy. It's great to suffer for the gospel because it means that we have been counted worthy by God. So, application. What do we do? Well, when you feel forgotten, ask biblical diagnostic questions. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there a consequence? Is this a consequence for a sin that you've committed? Um, are, you, are you walking with the Lord and practicing the spiritual disciplines? And if you can go through the, that checklist of, you know, how's my spiritual life? If, am, I, am I doing being obedient to the Lord? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? What I know to do, the known will of God? 
read my Bible, praying, going to church, going to small group, Bible study, my honoring him in all areas of my life. And if I am, and he's still silent, then there's nothing I can do but just trust and walk. And the Lord has just chosen to give me a season of silence. Let's look at verses 19 to 21 as we wrap up here. So David says, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Here's number four on your outline. The Lord welcomes our request when we suffer. He welcomes our request. David was asking for the Lord to get him out of the mess that he was in. He prayed with expectancy. And he believed that he had been heard and was confident God would answer him. So here's your application. The Lord welcomes our request. The application is don't turn your request into demands. Make your request with humility with an open hand and leave them at his feet. This might shock some of you, but the Lord won't be browbeat, pistol whipped, bullied, intimidated, or negotiated into answering our prayers. Well, I've tried it, all those, so let me just tell you, it doesn't work. And he won't answer if you go, how dare you, and you make threats or you make a deal trying to go, Lord, if you just do this, I'll do that. doesn't work. doesn't work. So the Lord welcomes our requests when we suffer, but don't turn your requests into demands. See, here's number five. The Lord is still worthy of our praise when we suffer. The Lord is still worthy of our praise when we suffer. Just look quickly at verses 22 and 23. David says, this is not David, he's not negotiating with God. I think it could easily be misunderstood as that. He says, I will tell of your name to my brother. So he, I, please don't think that he's, he's going, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll tell everybody about you. That's not what he's doing. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you, offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all of you, offspring of Israel. David breaks into praise and worship. He doesn't withhold worship from the Lord because of what he's going through. Instead, he allows God's past faithfulness and God's present character and future promises to be the basis of his worship. So the application, worship him for what he has done and will do. Worship him for what he has done and will do. So, so in other words, if you're sitting here going, I've been waiting for the Lord to come through forever, when really it's been like a year, but forever, it feels like forever, and I'm just, I can't bring myself to worship him. Well, worship him for what he has done in the past and worship him for what he will do in the future. That's where the promises of God come in handy. So... He's still worthy of our praise, so worship him for what he has done and will do. So can the Lord forget us? No. He will always remember us because he can't forget us. To forget is human, but to never forget is divine. 
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to first of all pray for anyone here in this room or maybe listening online that can't be forgotten by you because they don't yet know you. They can't call you father because they haven't first become your child. And so, Lord, would you please reveal Jesus Christ to them, help them to see their own sin and your holiness, but also, Lord, help them to see your open arms, ready to receive them, ready to bestow grace and mercy on them through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I realize there may be others here that are in a season of silence right now. They are walking, they are praying, they are in the scriptures, they're serving, they're doing everything they know to do. But it just seems like forever since they've heard from you and it seems like it's taking forever to get an answer to prayer. Lord, please, would you, would you extend grace to them? The grace that enables them to endure? Lord, please, would you... Would you encourage them? Would you, would you give them some hope that you are working? A sign that you haven't forgotten them? I mean, Lord, we know that we're supposed to trust you and your word and by faith believe you haven't forgotten us, but sometimes, Lord, we, we just really could, we could just use a crumb off your table. Father, finally... Um, for our church, would you please help our church become a church that is passionate about prayer? A church that knows how to pray the word and pray expectantly. We want to be known as a church where the spirit is moving powerfully and working and a church that would attract others to it because they see you at work here. So Lord, I'm going to ask what the disciples asked in Luke 11. Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray the way you want us to pray. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.